morning, everybody. How are we doing? Happy Father's Day. We're going to be in Revelations chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to them as we continue our series on the letters to the church, our kind of study in Revelation. And it's, uh, it's a different kind of study as we look at the words of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, and and uh, I, was, I was watching some stuff this week, and I, I was watching this old school rap thing. So 1990s was when I was in high school. And I started to think, because today's Father's Day, I started to think, like, when I was a kid, was I kind to my father on Father's Day? Did I do thoughtful things to him? Did I tell him Father's Day? Any of those, like, Happy Father's Day? Any of those kinds of things? I was curious, like... How thoughtful was I? Because my kids sometimes, you know, dads, you know what I'm saying. Like, it, it's, I, yeah, it's, it's tough sometimes, right? And so I was thinking back to, like, being a kid. I was thinking back to all these kinds of things. i sure I need to call and apologize to my father for how I didn't take care of him. just want to encourage moms, uh, if you're depending on the kids to do something for dad, you're doing it wrong. Uh, just... Can I help the dads out in that way? Uh, if you're dependent on the kids, you're doing it wrong. Let's, let's get a little help for the children uh, in this season. But I was watching this thing. I, when I, was, I graduated high school in 1993. And at that time, I, 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 all I listened to was rap music. It's all I knew. It's all I understood. It's everything. I, and, and back then, you didn't have like Spotify. You didn't have like the cool air. Like you had the Walkman. Right, that you would put the CD on. Like you try, anybody try and jog with a Walkman ever in their life? Right, is like an impossibility. You're jog, and it's, the CD skips while you're jogging. Right, and you're trying to hold it steady while you jog. And then they came up with like we're gonna attach it to your leg, and it, none of it ever worked. Right, but your CD would get a scratch, all those kinds of things. And I was just, I, I, I listened to all kinds of rap music, rap music that I shouldn't have listened to at that time. I listened to all kinds of different stuff. And at that time, 1993 to. To, like the, the, the mid-90s was the West Coast, East Coast rap battles. That's what was going on, right? So there was Tupac uh, out in California. There was Biggie on the East Coast. And there was this kind of beef going back and forth. And that's all everybody talked about. But in 1995, at the Source Awards here in Atlanta, Georgia, Outkast stepped up, right? <laughs> Outcast won every award that night, and everybody was shocked and surprised because everybody thought it was going to be Big Ear Tupac, and it was just going to be like the years before, and everything was going to happen. And they came up front, and the first time they received the award, the first words out of their mouth was this, the South got something to say. And from that moment on, right, that's a turning point in the history of hip-hop. If you, like, study the history of hip-hop, go back and listen to it. Like, Atlanta has produced so many amazing and incredible groups, and the South is producing way better music than the West Coast or the East Coast. I'm sorry, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There was this moment where everybody was paying attention over here, and everybody was paying attention over here, and somebody stood up and said, Somebody else has something to say. And so when we talk about Pergamum, when we look at the church of Revelation, I want to say this, and it may be super cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway. Jesus got something to say. 
right? In, in the middle of all the nonsense of the last year, in the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of all the bickering and fighting and arguing, the masks and no masks, shots and no shots, all of these crazy things that have been going on over the last year, I believe that Jesus still has something to say to his church. And so these letters matter. These letters are significant to us. And although they weren't written to us, they are written for us. And so we can learn by how Jesus speaks to these other churches and what he says to those other churches. And today's a tough message. Now, this is not a fun, fun series of things that Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. It's hard stuff. But if we're gonna do hard stuff, we might as well do it on Father's Day, right? Dads, are you with me, right? I, I, I've been to that church where on Mother's Day you love the moms and on Father's Day you beat up on the dads. Have you been to that church? That's not what we're doing here. Being a dad is hard. Being a dad is difficult. Being a dad is unseen over and over and over again. Being a dad is fighting the battles for your family that nobody else can fight. Being a dad is laying down yourself and dying to yourself every day so you can protect, provide, become a prophet and a preacher to your family. And it's hard work. It's hard work when you got little ones, and it's hard work when you got older ones. It's hard work when your kids go to college, and it's hard work when they get married. It's hard work when they go live on their own, and it's hard work when you're changing their diapers. It's hard work to be a dad. And so today, here's what I wanna do just to start the service. Every dad, I want you to stand up, and I want us to cheer for every dad in this place for the hard work that they do and the way that they love our church family. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Kids, take care of your dads. Moms, help them out. Uh, I, I, the, the message today is, not, is about compromise, and I don't know that there's a person in my life who I watch not compromise more than my father. Anybody with me? Like, I just watched my dad year after year just sacrifice for my family, just slowly do the right thing. Just long obedience in the same direction. Like, I don't know that there's anybody in my life who has been more faithful to loving me than my father has been. And he doesn't love me the same way my mom loves me, but he loves me the way he does, and he does it beautifully. And so let's make sure that we're honoring fathers today as we talk about this. We're, we're talking about Pergamum. We've got a little map of the seven churches. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about Smyrna and we talked about Ephesus. And so we've, we've dealt with the coast. Can we get that map up there? Uh, we've dealt with the coastal cities, right? The cities that are kind of port cities. And now we're moving inward to these seven churches. The interesting thing about these seven churches is they were all fairly close to one another. They're all within like 30 miles from one another in, in modern-day Turkey in kind of Asia Minor. And so all of these places are real close to one another as you walk. Pergamum's about 50 miles northeast of Smyrna. It's this elevated city center. It was known for body, soul, and mind. Out of all of these churches, Pergamum was the most central and important to the Roman Empire. And so culture was created in Pergamum. Pergamum was a place where music started to flow, where philosophy started to come out, where art was central to everything that they were doing. And they really did have a philosophy of body, mind, and soul. They, they had medical practices and medical technology that was greater than many of the cities at the time. Um, they had a shrine to the healing gods 
all the time that people would go to. Um, they, they, they catered to the soul. Um, it was a county seat for Rome, and it was one of the earliest temples of Zeus was in this place. Uh, and, and what we see is this kind of mind, body, and soul. The mind, they had the largest library in the region. There were over 200,000 books in the library of Pergamum, and they were always reading. They made their own paper. They were way ahead of their times. They were very similar, can I say, to America in a lot of ways. Very similar to our culture. They were on the cutting edge. They were out in front. They, they, they had lots of different philosophies, lots of different religions, lots of different things going on in all of these places. And the way that these letters are written, uh, it's written from John, and what John does is he does the credentials. He starts off by saying who he is, and he gives some kind of metaphor at the beginning. And those metaphors are a little significant to each of them. Then what he does is he gives a compliment. This is what's good. And then he gives a critique. This is the challenge, and this is what I want you to do. And all of these are words from Jesus to the church. Revelations chapter two, verse 12, it says, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. When we hear the two-edged sword reference, what do we think of? Bible, right? We think of the Bible, we think of the word of God. It's a two-edged sword, sharp able to pierce the heart, all of those kinds of things. He says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. John had named Antipas the bishop of the church at that time. He was the leader of the church in Pergamum. Uh, in the time of Nero, we talked about this on the first week, the persecution among the church leaders was growing and growing and growing to a really, really high level. And so he had ordained Antipas to be the leader of this group, and he was martyred sometime during Nero's reign, somewhere between 55 and 68 AD. But the way he was killed is he was burned in a brazen bull-like helmet, they put this helmet of a bull on him. Think about this, right? Which is a symbol of other gods. Because he wouldn't bow down to any god, they killed him in the helmet of one of their gods. Like crazy, awful, terrible, terrible place. Um, and, and, and he uses the phrase there, Satan's throne, which hangs some people up. Where Satan didn't really have a throne there. Um, but what he's talking about is this is a community where Satan is comfortable. It's a place where Satan is ruling and reigning and winning. Satan's throne also is a reference to the Roman Empire. The empire is the enemy in Revelation. And so the power of Nero, the power of these persecutors, the power of, of all of these emperors has a sign of Satan's throne because they're actually working against the things that God is asking them to do. So over and over again, there's this thing that says, don't get in bed with the empire. Like, don't fall in love with what's happening in your community. Make sure you're following the two-edged sword. Make sure you're sticking with the word of God. Make sure that you're not compromising. Make sure you're doing all of these kinds of things. And in this place, there's all of these different gods that are being worshiped. There's the God of Zeus is the biggest one. There's a, there's a temple there. I think we've got a picture of it, of the actual altar there in Pergamum. This is actually in Berlin right now, in the Pergamum Museum. And what it is, is it's a reinstatement, like a reenactment. They kind of built it, the sum of it, from uh, pieces that they found and discovered. But this is what the temple of Zeus would have looked like. There were these beautiful temples 
everywhere for all of these different gods and all of these people that they were supposed to be worshiping. So here's what Jesus says to them. I know where you dwell. Satan's throne. Like, I know where you dwell. You dwell in a difficult place. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, that feels like really good news to me because it feels like Jesus sees us, right? He knows that you're in a difficult situation. I don't know if you've ever been at work and everything's going wrong at work and you feel like nobody sees you, nobody notices, nobody knows what's happening. Jesus sees, he knows that it's difficult. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like, man, the finances just aren't working out. I just keep trying and I keep doing it, but it's just not working out. Jesus sees it. I don't know if you've been in that place where every relationship around you just seems to be falling apart and all the people that you depended on, you can't depend on anymore. Jesus sees it. I don't know if you've been in that place where your body's starting to fail and it feels like you're getting tired and you're getting sick and it just feels like you can't recover and you can't be well and you can't be whole. Jesus sees you. He says, I know where you dwell and I see that it's difficult. That's good news, guys. It's good news that he recognizes because here's what he says, but you hold fast to my name. There's this play on words throughout this whole passage about hold. It talks about you hold to the teachings is what it goes on to say of different leaders and different people and different gods. But here he says, but you're holding fast to my name. And there's a tension for every Christian in the world to, 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 to ask the question, what are we holding fast to? What's the thing that we're leaning into? What's the thing that we're depending on? Because in our world, we've got to choose whether we're going to be influenced by our culture and hold the values of our culture or whether we're going to be influenced by the risen Savior, Jesus. And it's no different for us today than it was then. We have to decide over and over again whose name are we going to hold fast to. Are we going to hold fast to the name of our political party? A lot of us have doubled down on that in the last few years. Are we gonna hold fast on the name of our favorite presidential candidate? A lot of us have doubled down on that in the last few years. Are we gonna hold fast to some kind of cultural theology or some kind of cultural idea that isn't in scripture and isn't taught about and isn't something that we see Jesus teaching us about over and over again? Or are we going to hold fast to the name of Jesus? Charles Spurgeon said this about the church. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God in its present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. They do the statistics every year. There's always a report that somebody puts out for pastors every single year that tells us that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate in the world. That tells us that all of the numbers, all of the things, like the, there's no difference between what's happening in the church and what's happening in the world. And man, I long for those numbers to change. I long for us to look different than the world around us, for us to have a higher calling in all of these things. He goes on to say, put your finger on any prosperous page in church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In the age, men could readily see where the church began and the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage to one another. The more the church is distinct from the world, her acts and her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. This is tough, especially in the last couple years. 
Because everybody in our culture is doubling down on their beliefs, on their political party, on their power. I keep having conversations with people. People will say, Pastor, can I meet with you? Can I have a conversation with you? Can, I, can we talk about this? And I'll sit down with somebody, and they start telling me what's on CNN or what's on Fox News. And I keep telling them what's in the Bible. And I cannot tell you how many times I've sat down with somebody who's just giving me something out of the headlines that's on their news channel that week, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even care. Like, I don't even know. I don't, I'm not even qualified to speak on that. I know what this says, and I'd love to talk to you about this. We've gotten so married to our political parties. We've gotten so married to our culture. We've gotten so married to, to the way America lives and works and breathes that nationalism has now become a threat to Christianity. We're more in love with America than we are with Jesus. And I love my country, guys. I'm, prou I'm proud to be in, I could sing a Lee Greenwood song right now. I'm happy to be here, but my allegiance is to Jesus. I hold fast to his name, and that means I have to critique the culture of America. That means I have to critique both political parties. That means I have to critique everything that's coming out of culture, and I have to discern what God is doing. There's this principle in battle, and it's called contested ground versus uncontested ground. This idea that there is certain ground that the enemy is willing to concede because it's not important ground. Does that make sense? All right, so normally in battle, the high ground matters. And so you wanna get the high ground because that's a, a, a valuable asset, right? And when you think about battle and war and all of these things, there's certain ground that you're like, I don't care, the enemy can have that space. Right? They can have that empty field over there that's full of garbage, right? They, they, can, they can hang out there, they can do whatever they want. But I'm not going to concede this asset that's valuable. Can I just suggest that I think there's times when Satan concedes ground and just says it doesn't really matter. Can I just be really real? Sometimes, I don't think Satan cares how many people are in church. It's ground he'll concede. You can gather 20,000 people, sing some songs, as long as no hearts are changed and they don't go out those doors and do anything different with it. But when we start to step into contested ground and contested territory, that's when the enemy ratches it up. That's when it becomes difficult. That's when it becomes challenging. There is this idea, and Pergamum is contested ground. Right? This is ground that, that Rome is dwelling. It says Satan dwells there. And so what we need in Pergamum is we need a church that is holding fast to the name of Jesus. What we need is a church that is not being co-opted by the world around them and by what Rome is saying and what the gods of Rome are saying. We need someone who is standing firm and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus regardless and no matter what. I think some of the heroes of our faith never get any credit. Like, I, guys, I'm from like, I don't, I could go back in my family history, I don't know, probably hundreds of years and find Christians. My mother-in-law would love to tell you about that, right? I could go back forever and I could tell you all about like, the, my great-great-grandfather was a traveling pastor in Kentucky. My great-great-great-grandfather was a pastor. Like, I could go back through my family history. It was easy for me to become a follower of Jesus. For some of you, it wasn't. For some of you are first generation Christians. 
Some of you are the first person in your family that made a commitment to stand up for Jesus. I'll never forget, I was a youth pastor in Anderson, Indiana when I first started in ministry. I was just a kid and I was just, I had all these junior high kids running around. I didn't know what I was doing, but we had a lot of fun. And this one kid shows up, his name was Jordan Plummer. Jordan's this amazing kid, kind of chubby kid. He shows up, he's really funny. He shows up one week and we're going to an amusement park and he says, I'm ready to go. And I was like, where's your parents? And he's like, I, I don't know, but I'm ready to go. He's, I said, did you bring any money? No, I don't have any money, but I wanna go to the amusement park. Okay, well, how are you gonna pay for it? I, I thought you would. Uh, and, and so I, like, I, we figured out how to pay for it. I gave him some money for food. I gave him like $25 for food for the day. And, and, uh, and, and here's the thing. The, the trip was for sixth graders through eighth graders. We found out after the trip that Jordan was in fifth grade and was lying to us the whole time. Jordan took his $25 that I had just handed to him, spent $25 at the first gas station we bought, we stopped at buying cotton candy and licorice, right? Youth pastors have hard jobs. I'm like, so, so before we even get to the amusement park, he throws up in the van, pukes all over the van. And then one of the adults in the back, which the adults are never helpful for the youth pastor. Like, they were all just like, clean it out, and Ben will clean it up. Like, it's fine. Just you guys go stand on the side of the road. Ben will take care of all the pukey stuff. And I was like a 22-year-old kid. I, I didn't know how to clean up after any. I got a hose or something. I don't know. I don't know what I did. He put a newspaper down just in it, and just kids walk over it. I don't know what I did at that moment, but I, I cleaned this up. And they were like, let's have Jordan just sit up front with Ben the rest of the way so he doesn't get car sick. And I was like, the issue's not that he's car sick, it's that he ate 14 pounds of cotton candy in a half hour. Uh, but so, this, so Jordan's sitting next to me, he never stops talking the entire trip. He never leaves my side the entire trip. Uh, at the end of the night, he's like, hey, when do you guys get together again? This was awesome. And I was like, we do a Bible study on Wednesday, or on Sundays, and we do a worship night on Wednesdays. Jordan never missed church again. Jordan became a believer about, three or four weeks in to being at the church. Nobody in his family knew Jesus. Nobody drove him there. Nobody encouraged him to be there. Nobody told him good job for making these decisions. He was telling me about all these things. Like once I, since when I, once I became a, Jesus, uh, a follower of Jesus, I stopped cheating all the time because I was cheating on every test. He's like, my grades are terrible now. My grades are so bad since I became a Christian. And I'm like, amen, brother, amen, right? amen. Like, let's. He made all of these decisions to do the right thing and choose the right thing. He was a hot mess all through junior high, all through high school. Like he, we, one, once, one week, we, my wife and I went on a trip for a weekend and we asked him to mow our grass and we came back and he was asleep in our bed. Right? Like he just stayed there the whole weekend. He just decided, I'm just staying at the house. I was like, how did you even get inside? I just gave you the key to the garage. He was like, I figured out how to kind of jimmy rig it. I got in there. He was a mess. Jordan's family started coming to church. His mom came to know Jesus. His sister Nick came to know Jesus. Jordan passed away in college, passed away in a car accident. I got to preach his funeral. Ten kids accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior that day at his funeral. Jordan's a hero of our faith, guys. Pergamum's the church. It was not one of the most amazing ministry, but it was producing some fruit. It's not one of the churches that was far along as everybody else, but it was growing against the odds. It was not one of the most successful churches, 
by any standards of the world, but they were holding fast to the name of Jesus in the middle of contested ground. And let me tell you, I would rather be a church that is struggling in contested ground than a church that's winning in uncontested ground. I would rather be a church that's fighting battles that matter and it's hard than just gathering more consumers and singing some great worship songs and feeling good about ourselves. This is Pergamum. This is what it looks like. And so here comes the critique. The the positive thing is, I see where you dwell. I know it's a hard place, but you keep holding fast to my name. He doesn't even say you're doing great. You notice that? He doesn't even say like, I see you doing really well here. He's just like, you're still doing it. You're still showing, like, sometimes that's what our spiritual life feels like, isn't it? Like, there's not a ton of fruit, and I don't know what's happening right now, but I keep showing up. I keep showing up in my prayer time. I keep showing up on Sunday morning. I keep showing up to serve the neighborhood and the community. I keep choosing love over hate. I keep deciding over and over and over again that I'm gonna follow Jesus, but I'm not seeing much fruit right now, and it feels really hard, and it feels difficult, but I'm just gonna keep going. Sometimes the best thing that we can do in our faith is just put one foot after the other. We just faithfully keep walking towards what Jesus has told us to do, and we hope and pray that breakthrough comes. Here's the critique, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You never want Jesus to say that. Not not the best start there. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So right, remember he said, you hold fast to my name. But here he says, you hold fast. To the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrifices to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, because if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sword, right? This is strong language. Strong, strong Language And what he's referencing here, he's referencing Balaam, which is an Old Testament story in Numbers 22 through 25, and it's this false prompt. Balaam tried to curse the people of God and trick them by doing one thing, but it didn't work, and so instead, he told the people of Israel they could marry foreign women and worship foreign gods, and essentially what he said to them is, I know I can't get you to do this one thing, but I can get you to make this small compromise. I know I can't get you to make this big compromise. I know you're not gonna go for this big thing. But I think I, I, think I can get you with this little thing. And it worked. It happened. The Nicolaitans are a mess. The Nicolaitans are all over Revelations. It's talked about them over and over again. They eat food that is sacrificed to idols and their actual worship services involve sexual immorality. Right? You show up at that church, just run. Right, that's a, that's a bad, bad news. I, I, we won't go into what was going on. It was kinky and it was inappropriate. And we'll just say, like, most wise people would say, I need to leave this church now. Right? But people were grabbing onto it. They're starting to hold to this teaching. Right? They're starting to grab on to, like, maybe it's just a little bit. I'm not going to grab on to the whole thing. Like, I'm not going to go full Nicolation. But I'll watch Nicolation on TV. I'm not gonna go to their church and participate, but if they're having a cookout, like some hot dogs and some kinky stuff on the back end, like I might hang out for some of that. There's these tiny, tiny compromises that were beginning to happen. 
Compromised is a mutually agreed upon concession accepting lower standards. A mutually agreed upon concession where you accept lower standards. And here's the problem. We make mutual concessions and tiny compromises and sacrifice the standards of this all the time. And we don't even blink about it because we don't think it's a big thing. We think it's a little thing. We minimize sin. We belittle holiness. Because here's what we do. We categorize our sin. Am I right? Because there's big things that we're like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that one. Like, we got big ones, right? We're doing pretty good in the church with not murdering. Right? We've not had a lot of murders in Grace Marietta in my five years here. Right? We're doing pretty good there. We're doing pretty good with the adultery thing. We take adultery really serious. Uh, We've not had a single Sunday where somebody's stolen something from us. Nobody's trying to grab these TVs. Those are nice TVs. Right? But there's ne- nobody's pushing that out the back door or those kinds of things. Those things have not happened because we take those things seriously. We recognize the consequences of those. We recognize that, 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 that those, are, those are big, big things. But here's what we do. Sometimes what we call sin is we don't call it a sin. We call it a weakness. So we're good with the big things. We're not doing those things. But let's talk about Gossip. Let's talk about unforgiveness. Let's talk about bitterness. Let's talk about lust. It's getting real quiet in here. Proverbs 6.16 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. You know what's not on there? Murder, adultery, and stealing. Seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. A hand that sheds innocent blood. That may be murder. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste and run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. You know the one thing that's abomination to him? The one who sows discord among the brothers. Woo! Church people. I've been to some churches with some discord. We don't treat it like murder. The thing he hates those who sow discord, those who stir up trouble, those who gossip. Is it possible that sometimes we compromise? Is it possible that sometimes it's easier for us to say, well, that's a weakness that I'm working on rather than that's a sin that I need victory over? I'll just confess to you guys, I've been really challenged this week that I don't take holiness serious enough sometimes. In my own life, In my preaching. Because here's some sins that we call weakness. Premarital sex. Greed. Lust. Gossip. Lying. And TVs and movies that we watch. Cohabitation before marriage. Laziness. Pride. Unforgiveness. Drunkenness. Saying unkind words to one another. Making up stories or mischaracterizing others. And we we even have language for these things. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little lie. I just had one too many. We laugh and we say, I know this movie's terrible, but it was kind of funny. It was just a social media post. I just, when we get together and we start talking, like sometimes some stories start happening and there's just a little bit of gossip. 
And I wonder if we treated gossip the same way we treated adultery if we get victory over it. I wonder if we treated lust the same way we treated murder if we might see some progress. I wonder if we treated unforgiveness the same way we treated stealing. We might see some breakthrough in our lives. This is the thing that I hold against you, Jesus said. You have made tiny compromises that have ruined your witness. And I don't love this stuff, right? I wish that Jesus signed off on my life. Are you with me? I wish that Jesus just looked at my life and was like, ah, it's all good. You're a good kid, Ben. Keep up the good work. But the truth is, and this is the reality, and it's a hard reality, every single person in this room, I don't care if you're the holiest person in this room, some of you are really holy, Jesus will look at your life and say, you've made some tiny compromises, and I want to keep calling you back to holiness. But here's what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that the passage doesn't end there. I'm grateful that the passage doesn't end with like, knock it off. Stop it. Quit doing that. There's some swords and Bibles coming at you, right? Like, I'm grateful that the passage doesn't end there, but there is a reality for all of us that sometimes we love ourselves more than we love to serve, and we're okay with it. That sometimes we love fun more than we love the church, and we're okay with it. That sometimes we love consuming more than we love giving, and we're okay with it. Sometimes we love autonomy more than we love commitment, and we're okay with it. Sometimes we love being a part of a clique more than being a part of a community, and we're okay with it. Sometimes we love our feelings more than we love scripture, and we're okay with it. Sometimes we love winning more than we love listening, and we're okay with it. Sometimes we love being right more than being kind, and we're okay with it. And sometimes we love sin more than we love truth, and we're okay with it. David has this amazing prayer over and over again in scripture where he says, search my heart and know me, God. And I wonder what would happen to the American church if we started becoming a people that just continually said, search my heart. See, the problem is, we think that we need to hide this stuff and run from it and pretend that it doesn't exist when Jesus says repentance is the best thing that can happen to you. The best thing that can happen to you is you're living the plan that God has for your life and you're aligned with him and you're walking with him and you're doing the things that he's called you to do. It's the best life that's available to you. And so we dig in and we, we get to a place where we actually say, okay, Lord, what are the tiny compromises that I've taken? What are the ways in which I've done some things that I shouldn't do or, or I've said some things that I shouldn't have said or I've watched some things that I shouldn't have watched or I've laughed at some things I shouldn't have laughed at? Like, where are these areas in my life? And Lord, would you search my heart and would you know me? And when it happens, will you tell me? Because there's beauty in the fact that Jesus, when we compromise, chooses to give us a gift. Verse 17, I'm really grateful, verse 17 and 18 anyway. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will give you hidden manna. For those of you who are in the tough place and you're battling with your sin right now and you're fighting for it and it's hard and it's difficult and you're trying to be holy but that thing just keeps popping up again and again and again, I will give you hidden manna. I will give you hidden provision if you ask for it. When's the last time we hit our knees and said, Lord, make us holy? Lord, make, like, teach me to be holy so that my kids have a model of a dad that's holy and good. 
Teach me to be holy so I can love my wife the way that you love your church. Teach me to be holy so that I can pastor people and care and be an example and a model. Like we just need to hit our knees and say, Lord, make us holy. And here's the good news. When we do, he gives us hidden manna. He gives us hidden provision. And this, listen to this. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one else knows except the one who receives it because the black stone was given to Jesus on the cross, but the white stone of purity and wholeness and forgiveness was given to us. So here's what Jesus says. I see you. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to be holy. I know the difficult spaces you're walking in. I know that you're dwelling in a really hard space. I want you to grow. I want you to stop compromising. But when you do, grace is here. There should have been an amen from everybody in the room on that one, right? Because we are not people of the law, we are people of grace. The law always points us to Jesus because we can't fulfill it. Like there's some of you in here, like I hang out with you, you're really holy and you're really good and you're really wonderful people and you're sweet, and you're caring, and you're kind, and you're amazing, but you cannot fulfill the law. The only way is through Jesus. It's through the grace that he's given us. This is the beauty of our father. Like, this is the example of fathering. Isn't this what fathers do over and over again? They call us to something greater. They challenge us when we make mistakes. They never stop inviting us in. I don't care how far you've run. I don't care how many of the lists of laws that you've broken. I don't care how many compromises that you've made, big or small, in your life. The white stone is available to you. And Jesus is saying over and over and over again, there's a new name that's written on it. There's a new identity. There's a new hope. There's a new future there's a new joy that's awaiting for you. So here's my challenge for us this week. Is let's actually take serious. Jesus, are there some areas in my life where you want me to grow that I'm not growing? Are there some things that I've called weaknesses and I've minimized that you actually call sin and want me to wrestle with? And could we dig in there? I was really convicted this week about some of my thought patterns, right? Scripture over and over again talks about the battle is actually for the mind, right? We wanna take captive our thoughts. We wanna learn to have the thoughts of Jesus, to think like him, to think with him. So I was really convicted about all these things, but here's the problem with it. A lot of times, like I'm not even aware of where my thoughts are going, are you with me? Like I'm not even present in my life enough to know like, oh, wait a minute, I just sinned in my head because my thoughts are so nasty and so hateful and so angry and so vindictive and all kinds of nonsense. And so one of my prayers this week has been like, Lord, would you, help me would you help me catch myself before I do it? Would you just make me more aware of the sin in my life? And when I make a mistake, will you say, you did it again? But not... You did it again, and so you're out. I'd never do that to my kids. Not you did it again, and so I'm ready to punish you right now, and I'm coming down hard. 
but you did it again, and I want the best for you, and I want to call you to something greater, and I want to invite you into a deeper relationship with me. So I want to lovingly correct you. It's one of the hardest things to do as dads, isn't it? To lovingly correct, because sometimes your kids drive you crazy, and they keep making the same mistake, and you keep trying to love them, and it's hard. Man, I want my kids to know their daddy as somebody who stands before them and says, no matter what you do, I love you. No matter what you do, I'm proud of you. No matter what you do, I'm inviting you deeper into relationship with me because I want the best for you. It's the same model that we see in our Father in heaven. And so we're going to move into a time of communion. And I just want us to take a moment and just kind of do a search our heart kind of moment. Could you stand before Jesus this morning and say, Lord, search my heart. And maybe there's a challenge. Maybe there's an area of your life that you need to work for, towards. Maybe there's somebody that you need to talk to. Maybe there's confession that's a part of your repentance. Maybe you need to go to somebody and say, I've been holding unforgiveness. Maybe you need to go to somebody and say, I've been gossiping. Maybe you need to go to somebody and say, I've been doing this tiny thing and I can't do it anymore. Maybe we need to just get on our knees and ask Jesus to forgive us today. And maybe today there's somebody here who just, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I just want to invite you because I think it's good. I think it's the best life that I could ever imagine. I see the God in Scripture as a God who is good and loving and for us and with us. The God who lays down his life for us and keeps inviting us in. So if you want to pray with somebody today, we're going to have some folks in the back that would love to pray with you, whether that's to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whether that's to talk about something that's going on in your life, whether it's just to pray about, I, I need victory in this area, I need breakthrough in this area, will you pray with me? And we're going to move to a time of communion, and I, I mean, I don't know that there's a better time for us to understand. We do it through liturgy every single week take the bread which represents the body of Christ which was broken for us we drink the juice which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us and we come to the table remembering that the table of God is always available and open to us and that no matter how many times we keep getting it wrong he keeps dying for us no matter how many times we keep making mistakes he keeps inviting us to the table no matter how many times, like the church in Pergamum, we make tiny compromises, he keeps saying, come back home. Come back home. So, Heavenly Father, I pray right now that we would just be able to have a moment with you, a sweet moment with you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would move and work in this room in ways that I cannot pray that you would stir hearts. I pray that you would stir imagination. I pray that you would kindly and lovingly remind us of where you've called us. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, Jesus. As we pray for a sweet spirit of kindness that sweeps over this room right now in Jesus' name and reminds us of who we are and reminds us of who we could be, calls us to something. So, Lord, we give you this time of worship. We give you this time of communion. We ask that you teach us not to make tiny compromises. 
to follow faithfully where you lead. It's in Jesus' name.